This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the August 31st, 1943 edition of the CBS Morning News. It includes analysis and updates on the war from Australia, London, Washington, and New York. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can find more on our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, our online store, and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you now the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. But first, here are the highlights of the latest news as received up to 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Tuesday, August 31st. The RAF raided Germany during the night, and around the world, General MacArthur announces a new Allied air success against the Japs at Weewak, New Guinea. In Russia, the Red Army is pressing its offensive in several sectors. The tense situation in Bulgaria is mounting, and there looms the possibility that Hitler may have to dispatch German troops into that satellite country. And now, here is Hugh Conover. The victorious Russian armies which captured Taganrok are pressing in on the wake of the retreating Germans today. The Russians are driving toward the seaport of Mariupol, which is tw- 75 miles to the west, and the industrial city of Stalino, 70 miles to the northwest. Remnants of the Taganrok garrison trapped by those Russians which drove through to the east coast, 28 miles west of the city, are being methodically wiped out by the Soviets. In Moscow, a special order of the day from Premier Stalin announced the liberation of Taganrok. Twelve artillery salvos from 124 guns saluted the victorious forces. Some military experts believe the Germans may follow up their evacuation of Taganrok by abandoning the Kuban bridgehead and the whole of the Crimea soon. Down in the southwest Pacific, CBS correspondent William J. Dunn has just returned from a frontline tour of the Salamawa battle area. For that report, we take you to CBS Australia, William J. Dunn reporting. Strongly, during a tour of Allied forward positions in New Guinea at the present time, is the fact that the Japanese are still going to require a lot of convincing. They aren't easily discouraged, and the fact that a certain program fails them utterly doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to abandon that program without further efforts to implement it. Take Waywalk as a point in case. I can tell you from personal knowledge that reports of damage done to the Japanese Air Force in the Waywalk raids two weeks ago were not exaggerated. As far as Japanese air power over New Guinea was concerned, there was none visible during the time I spent near Salomon. We not only had air superiority, as the Army phrases it, but we apparently had absolute supremacy in the skies for the full two weeks after the Waywalk raids. To all practical ends, we had proved the Waywalk fields untenable in the face of our own nearby strength. But Tokyo wouldn't concede the point, and the Japs had to take another licking yesterday. Another licking in the same place and in the same way. 
Our bombers, heavily escorted, visited Waywalk again and found, for the first time in many days, just what they had hoped to find. Jap planes, back on the scene, preparing to resume business. You may have heard the results. Twelve planes destroyed on the ground, 25 more shot down in the air, 12 others toppled, 17 damaged. Just as certain as the fact that the Japs are going to require a lot of convincing is the fact that we are going to convince them. But it will not be an easy nor a short assignment. During the past three weeks, I have traveled extensively in the battle areas of New Guinea, around the Salamoa area. I have inspected our line of, communi of communications, which is operating surely and efficiently, operating in full knowledge, partly in full view of the enemy. I have watched our artillery batter enemy positions into powder and ducked into foxholes as their inconsiderable guns attempted retaliation. We are driving the Japanese back along the entire front, but everywhere there is evidence of the enemy's unwillingness to be convinced. The shelling which preceded our attack on and occupation of Roosevelt Ridge on the northern shore of Tambu Bay, within view of Salamore, was beyond doubt the greatest exhibition of artillery strength New Guinea has yet seen. For a full day, we pounded the enemy heights with medium guns, machine guns, and mortars. Casual soldiers even fit and emptied their rifles in the general direction of the enemy. And the softening up process was completely effective. But when our infantry followed with a successful attack up the sheer sides of those battered heights, the Japs merely fell back to the next ridge and dug in for another shelling. And they're getting it. I accompanied the Navy on a patrol of Japanese shore positions facing Huon Gulf and the Bismarck Sea. Under cover of darkness, we searched the shores of Vidya Straits, miles north of Finchhaven, strafing beaches from our torpedo boats and keeping alert for the barges, without which the enemy that lay in Salamoa cannot be effectively reinforced or supplied by sea. We established beyond doubt that there was no barge traffic that particular night. By day, our Air Force maintains the same blockade with total effectiveness. In other words, Salamoa must be under obvious blockade. It is faced with frontal attacks backed by air supremacy and overwhelming artillery, artillery superiority. I must report, however, that there are still no signs that Japan is convinced of the hopelessness of a situation that must be hopeless. The troops that are defending Salamoa today, if successfully withdrawn, might be used to better advantage elsewhere. But in the light of lessons learned at Buna and Guadalcanal, there seems little chance that Japan will make any such attempt. I make this report not with the intention of being discouraging, but with the intention of informing you accurately on the kind of foe your sons and brothers are facing in New Guinea. There is no ground for discouragement. On the contrary, there is every reason to believe that we have solved the problem of how to beat the Japanese at their own business of jungle warfare. Our troops are in good condition and excellent spirit. Every boy you meet is dreaming of coming home, but you can't say that homesickness is prevalent. They are eating much better than they did at Boone, thanks to air supremacy and improved communication. And they have all they actually require to fight with. They have found staunch friends and allies in the Australians who are fighting side by side with them. And they have no doubt of their ability to do the job. Short, our boys realize the Jap is hard to convince, but they are sure 
They will convince him. This is William J. Dunn in Australia. I return you to CBS in New York. The Berlin radio says General Gunther Corten, who reputedly planned the Luftwaffe assault on Coventry, has been named Chief of Staff of the German Air Force. Corten, 45, is a native of Cologne and veteran of World War I, and succeeds Colonel General Hans Jekonek. In Europe, the RAF raided Germany during the night. For that and other developments, we take you to CBS London, Charles Collingwood reporting. The RAF made another monster attack last night. The industrial area of Munchen, Gladbach, and White, a series of factory towns in which one begins where the other ends, was the target. This area is in the Rhineland, and much closer to Britain than such recent targets as Nuremberg and Berlin. Twenty-eight British bombers are missing from last night's raid. The trouble in Scandinavia is being watched with sympathy and excitement from London. The news of the Danish insurrection is almost all coming from Stockholm, where a trickle of refugees is arriving to tell their story. The latest news is that the revolt in Denmark is still going on, although the outbreaks have become sporadic as the Germans tighten their hold on the little country. Danish circles in London estimate that the Germans are happy to put about 100,000 troops into Denmark. That the Danish rebellion is having its effect throughout the rest of the nation. The Norwegians are pleased and partial. The Swedes are standing up to the Germans with a firmness that is tinged with impudence. When vessels of the Danish Navy escape to Sweden, pursued by German planes, we are sorry that our reception from London is of insufficient broadcast quality. However, here is further news from Press Association wires on the raid of the RAF last night. A crushing weight of bombs, ranging upwards to four-ton super blockbusters, were dropped on tool-making and textile factories and railway installations at Mönchengladbach and Wright in the first raid of those Rhineland cities in more than two years. The attack represented a continuation of the RAF tactics of striking at widely separated targets in order to prevent the Germans from concentrating their defenses in the Berlin area, which is still the number one target. Ending a two-night weather-enforced lull in the air offensive against Germany, the four-engine Stirlings, Halifaxes, and Lancasters subjected the two cities to their heaviest bombardment of the war. Paving the way for the night raiders, American and British medium bombers, heavily escorted by Allied fighters, made a scorching attack late yesterday afternoon on targets near Saint-Omer in the northwest corner of France, which is a site of airfields guarding the sky approaches to Germany. Such raids usually are intended to smash parked aircraft and demoralize German defenses. One RAF Mitchell bomber was lost in this foray. Returning pilots reported that they had set large fires and said the fighter escort kept German interceptor planes at a very respectable distance. And that's the latest news from London. Here at home, there's good news for Eastern motorists to top off the domestic picture. For those developments, we take you to CBS Washington. Robert Lewis reporting. The Office of Price Administration has announced that effective at midnight tonight, Eastern motorists will no longer have OPA inspectors to worry about, but only their own consciences when they do whatever pleasure driving they can on one and a half gallons of gas a week. The lifting of the pleasure driving ban, the OPA continued, does not mean that there is any more gasoline available, 
but that enforcement is too difficult in the face of public protests. Therefore, the ban is being lifted and motorists will be put on their honor to use no more gasoline than is absolutely necessary to meet their essential needs. The War Production Board, in making public a report on July war production, announces that peak production of many types of fighting equipment has been achieved or is not far off. Overall production last month, the report shows, was 3% over June's output. Airplane production climbed to 7,373 planes, an increase of 4%. Signal equipment, registering the biggest overall gain of the month, went up 17%. But even with the general increases made, Project Production Chief Nelson says that important further increases are required. If our production goals are to be achieved, he says, production step-ups must continue during the next six months. Chairman Andrew J. May of the House Military Affairs Committee has announced that he's going to press for immediate enactment of a universal post-war military training law just as soon as Congress reconvenes two weeks from today. May says that this country should have such a law, in his own words, as a big stick just in case any of the other big stick boys get ideas. Under his proposal, every able-bodied male between 17 and 21 would have to take a full year of military training. Of international affairs, the speculations and rumors going the rounds ever since the president went to Quebec have died out this morning pending Prime Minister Churchill's speech this afternoon, which will be broadcast by Columbia beginning at 1 o'clock Eastern wartime. This is Robert Lewis in Washington, now back to CBS New York and Hugh Conover. The German radio says that British troops attempted a minor landing in Italy, southeast of Reggio Calabria, across from Sicily, but that it was immediately scotched. Allied heavy bombers blasted the Italian airfield at Viterbo, 40 miles north of Rome yesterday, and squadrons of medium bombers hammered railway yards at Aversa. Swarms of enemy fighters battled the medium bombers and their escorts at Aversa, north of Naples, and 17 were shot down. And that's the top news from the Mediterranean. Behind the battle lines, Adolf Hitler is being forced to plug up several weak spots in his occupied and satellite countries. An entire German armored division is said to have been rushed from Norway to Denmark to reinforce the Axis troops in that country. Hundreds of Danish soldiers have been killed in the futile but nonetheless determined resistance. Communications with Denmark are still severed, but reports filtering through to Sweden make it clear that the Danes are not submitting to German dictatorship without a struggle. And in Bulgaria, there are signs that Hitler may have to use German occupation troops to hold that satellite nation in line. Renewed riots and peace demonstrations are reported, and general strikes have cropped up in several sectors. Here at home, there is a tragic note in the news this morning. One of the worst railroad accidents in New York State's recent history took the lives of at least 27 persons late yesterday. The Lackawanna Limited, en route to Buffalo and Chicago, sideswiped a switch engine believed to have been backing into a siding at Wayland, New York. Forty-six injured passengers and crewmen are in hospitals in Wayland and in neighboring Dansville, Bath, and Hornell. Scores of others less seriously hurt were treated and then released or sent to nearby tourist homes. And that's the latest news. Once again, Columbia has brought to you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. 